Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. 
check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of July, St. Evans is supporting For the Quarrels, a Black trans-led collective that fundraises to help Black transgender people pay for rent, gender-affirming services, other medical expenses, and the associated travel costs. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. 
Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that wants you to please stop giving secondhand sellers a hard time about their pricing. (laughs) Seriously, just don't do it. Be nice. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 88. And today, I'm so excited about today's episode. Our extra special guest is Jade, aka Fashion Without Trashin. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that Jade has been a massive influence when it comes to getting more and more people involved in both buying and selling secondhand clothing. She's been doing this for a very long time, so she's got a ton of stories and expertise to share. So whether you sell secondhand, buy secondhand, or maybe you're just a little secondhand curious, I think you're going to learn a lot today. This is part one of our conversation, because as much as I thought that I would be able to cram this all into one episode, there was just too much stuff that was too good to cut out. It's a, it's a good problem to have, I promise. <laughs> Today, Jade will share her journey as a reseller from eBay. Yes, remember eBay? Okay, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I use eBay all the time. Anyway, to Poshmark, to literally opening her own store. I'm just going to jump in here now and say, no, we're not going to be talking about Danielle Bernstein. If you're familiar with Jade via that story, this is going to be a great opportunity for you to learn the real reason for following, supporting, and admiring Jade, which is that she's a hard worker, I would say a low-key business genius, and most importantly, a rad, thoughtful, and funny person. If you're unfamiliar with Jade, but know the name Danielle Bernstein and have to get the tea, go check out Jade's Safe Stories. Or don't, because that's just not what Jade's story is really all about. She's an expert in all things secondhand. And since that's not something you can study in school, I can safely say that she learned all of this with lots of work, trial and error, and just a love for what she does. By the time you finish this episode, you will know more than ever that selling secondhand is hard work, it's skilled work, and it's worth paying for. We're also going to talk about our feelings regarding big fast fashion brands getting into the resale market. You know I get riled up about that, much like they all tried to get into rental before the pandemic. And I'm just going to plug myself here on my own podcast, but if you haven't listened to last week's Instagram Live, our birthday extravaganza about rental and why my feelings about it are complicated, please go check that out on Instagram because rental is another example of these big retailers, these big fast fashion brands seeing a piece of their 
money pie disappearing and deciding to jump in on it and realizing that the things that make fast fashion inherently bad for our planet and its people kind of ruin rental and undo any good effects it has. So go check that out. I'm excited to be doing a couple of episodes about secondhand again, because I truly believe that secondhand is the future. Do you know, it is July, almost August of 2021, and I haven't bought any brand new clothing this year. That's huge for me. Uh, That's never happened in my life, even though I've always been a a pretty big secondhand vintage shopper. But this year I was like, that's going to be my focus. And you know what? I look better than ever. (laughs) I also am just going to say that secondhand is the key to ending fast fashion as we know it. And when I say fast fashion, I mean the way of doing business that is exploitive, that's wasteful, and rips off its customers. It's a business model that will always prioritize profits over people and planet. And when I say ending fast fashion, I'm not saying let's make sure that clothing is more expensive and less accessible. Let's take some stock here of the sheer volume of new clothing that is passing in and out of our lives at just a raging velocity. The average American is buying a new garment every five days give or take a few hours. There are tons of us who don't buy new clothes very often that solely shop secondhand that wear our clothes until they disintegrate into dust. So think about it. We are offsetting all those other people to get to this one garment every five days or so, which means that there are lots of people who are buying a garment every two days or every day. Or I, I, you know what? I can't even let my brain think of a period smaller than one day because even that's kind of mind-blowing. But like, That's the reality. Like, it's easy for us to say, well, I don't buy that many new clothes or I've been wearing the same new, same clothes since college or high school. But when you say that, what you're really saying is, holy shit, there are a lot of other people out there buying way more clothes (laughs) to get us to this point. We're buying, and when I say we, I mean the larger we, not you and me. We're buying way more clothes than previous generations, and we're wearing them for a shorter period of time. In fact, oh, this one hurts me. The average garment is only worn seven times. When we're done with these clothes, often the only option appears to be either the trash can or the donation bin. Well, and I've talked about this before, and I'm just bringing it up again. A mere 15% of our unwanted clothing actually gets donated to thrift stores and charities. The remainder heads off to landfills, and we're talking millions of tons each year. The level of textile consumption and waste each year is mind-blowing. Only 7% of those garments that are donated, remember that's only 15% of our unwanted clothing, is ever worn again by another person. That's about 1% of our total unwanted clothing ever being worn again by another person. Only one half percent of our unwanted clothes are being worn by a person in our community. I know this is a lot of percentages and figures and it might be hard to envision because even as I was saying it, it was kind of like, I know these are bad, but like how bad are they? So let's try this. 
I bet you have 100 garments in your life. Let's include socks. Hell, we'll, we'll break the socks apart and count them individually as two garments, right? Underwear, tights, pajamas, all of that. We're going to pull all of that together to get to this number. Now think about this. Only one of those garments, maybe just a sock, will ever be worn by another person that isn't you. Now cut that garment in half. We don't want to cut up those socks. It's too sad. Let's say it's a pair of jeans. One leg of those jeans will be worn by someone locally. Now I know no one is buying or wearing single leg jeans, but I do think that could be a hot trend. (laughs) Just putting that out there. But you get the idea. When you picture the rest of your clothes that will never be worn by another person, you have to realize that this is a compelling argument for one, buying less new stuff in general, and two, reselling what you can or giving it to someone else to resell. Because donation, as much as we would love it to, just isn't getting the job done. And Jade and I are going to talk about that a lot in this episode and even more in the next episode, because there's a lot of confusion out there in the general population about what's happening to our donated stuff. It's it's kind of a secret for a reason. As we'll discuss today, there's just too much stuff flowing into these thrift stores to ever rehome it all, to even properly sort it all. Instead, we're just passing the burden on to other countries. We're shipping tons and tons of our unwanted stuff overseas where it becomes someone else's problem. I'll be getting into that more next month when Liz from the Orr Foundation joins me to talk about the impact our unwanted clothing is having on Ghana. So that's in the future. Let's now jump into our conversation with Jade because after that, I'm going to teach you about the pyramid of merchandising. And I know that sounds very mysterious, like it should be in one of those time life secrets of the unknown books. Well, it's way less sexy than that, I promise, but it's interesting nonetheless. All right, let's meet Jade. So Jade, why don't you tell everyone who you are? Well, hello. Thank you, first of all, so much for having me. Um, I'm Jade Myers. I am a clothing reseller, and I also just opened a sustainable boutique in New York. So those are my main things that I spend my time on. Um, I'm originally from California, but I've been in New York now for about 12 years. So it, yeah, it feels like home now. Um, But yeah, that's that's me, I guess. How long have you been doing secondhand? I've actually been selling secondhand clothing for 20 years, which I think shocks. What? Yeah. (laughs) I know. It shocks people. Wow. Then they see me. And I'm like, well, I started when I was 14 officially. Uh Uh-huh. As a – like business-wise, I started when I was 14. And where were you selling? eBay. So eBay was the first sort of like online platform that I joined. My dad was selling guitars on there. And <laughs> of course, I always wanted new clothes. And so yeah. I was like, well, that, I guess that's a way for me to sort of have this never-ending wardrobe. And then, you know, <laughs> it all bloomed from there, really. Oh, my gosh. And I'm just thinking because I – we're still an eBay household over here because I think people <laughs> forget about eBay. And, like, you can find some shit on there. Like, let me tell yeah. you because – 
people forget about eBay. And my husband and I were both very early adopters of it. And we love to just like sometimes sit down and talk about how old timey eBay was back then. And yeah. I'm sure you can remember like, yes. like people would send you money orders. Yes. And then you could, then you would ship their stuff. Can you imagine that now? And the pictures it's, were so bad, like oh, just you know, on the floor and so blurry. I honestly look back and think about. It, I'm like, how did anybody buy anything from this? I know, I know, and like. I'll tell you that there are still people on eBay who are living in oh, yeah. 2000 eBay, mm-hmm. like in terms of the photography and the descriptions are so funny. Um, but the rules, <laughs> right? You will not oh return this if you don't like the color or something. <laughs> like they're so intense. <laughs> you must email me before 2 p.m. Central Time. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> it's a lot of rules. The thing about eBay 20 years ago is that it was – full of scammers. It was the wild, wild west. There was very little to no PayPal. Mm -hmm. And you had to trust that strangers were going to pay you for something that they bought. Because I felt like frequently, and I mean a lot, people would bid and win and then never pay. And you would have to wait so long to relist because of that. Like you had to give them so much time to decide whether or not they were going to send you a money order or a personal check. <laughs> right. I mean, not that I took personal checks, but I know some people would. <laughs> to be honest, I don't even remember. I think that I took money orders because I can vaguely remember receiving like mail or something, but I would have had to have <laughs> yeah. my dad taking care of that because I didn't have a bank account at 14. I didn't have a bank account <laughs> until I was like 16, I think. So I have no idea – I mean, and also I can't even believe the amount of stuff that we did on the internet when I was that age just like blows my mind as well. I'm like, why were you not monitoring this? Yeah. I'm like over here talking to like old guys buying my clothes probably. Like, I don't know. <laughs> you know like there's pictures yeah. of me online in these clothes. Like no supervision. And totally they – were, they were creeps on eBay. Oh, I mean, yes. like the internet. still creeps on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. And I would get weird messages from dudes, like horny dudes, asking me to like model things for them. I still get messages from horny dudes. (laughs) I mean, it's just like when I think of the internet in 2021 and I'm like rating in my mind sexiest website to least sexy website (laughs) slash app, eBay is on that unsexy end for me. Very unsexy. It doesn't have a good design. No. It's not very cool. No. <laughs> Absolutely Still creep, not. Though. Absolutely not. So, okay. So you went all the way back to eBay, but I know that you also sell a lot on Poshmark, right? Or did right. at least. No, I do. Yeah, I still do. And a so lot. when was – do you still sell on eBay? No, gosh, no. No, that's a long <laughs> story of a steep decline. <laughs> and I mean, no doubt. I've been hearing some pretty crazy stories from people who did sell on eBay for a long time, but it just – I mean, one, it's not a place where a lot of people shop now, mm-hmm. at least a lot of people who are buying what you're selling. Yeah, especially and fashion. Two, right. the way that like eBay has changed or I guess like sort of prioritized mm. the customer over mm-hmm. the seller to such an extreme. I don't know how anyone can make any money off of eBay. I don't know. Right? I've been reading horror stories of people who are like, I inherited a whole bunch of really high-end purses from my grandmother. I sold them on eBay. People received them. 
then sent pictures to eBay of a different purse that wasn't nice, that wasn't vintage. And eBay said, okay, "Okay, give them the money back. So I was out the purse and the money. Like there's just no one sides with the sellers there. No, they really don't. And the final straw for me, I was on their app for 10 years and I had their app or their website, whatever. Um, And I had a never went below like a 98% rating and all of a sudden one day they send me this email saying, we're permanently banning you. What? <laughs> like, for what? Yeah. And I, I had no idea what it was even for. I'm like trying to call them, get somebody on the line. Like nobody would talk to me. They're basically saying like, nope, sorry, we can't touch this. You're permanently banned. And I finally got somebody higher up to tell me what had happened. And it was that I had received multiple four-star ratings on um, the cost of shipping and they said that, you know, they reserved the right to remove me because I was charging people too much for shipping. And I was like, I literally use your shipping. <laughs> like, <laughs> I literally use your shipping metrics and your everything to, to, you tell me how much to pay for the shipping and I buy the label through you. So how is it possible that you're even allowing somebody to rate the cost of the shipping when it's the actual cost of shipping? They said, well, it's not up to us, ma'am. It's up to, you know, their discretion. I was like, their discretion of what? And they're like, well, maybe you should should have offered free shipping. Ugh, I knew that was coming. Fuck. I was like, what? Yeah, that <laughs> that makes me so angry. I it's interesting because I feel like that around that time they started alienating a ton of sellers. Mm-hmm. So many people around that time that I know were thrown off, banned for life for really silly things like that. And now, yeah, there's very little clothing on eBay. You know, right? I uh, it. In comparison. In comparison. To, because to so many of the other apps and stuff. Totally. Because yeah. that used to be my first stop all the time. I would find so much amazing vintage on eBay and newer, like more premium brands and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Now you can, but you have to really to really dig. And you also, if you're used to buying from the other apps, it's an adjustment because like the photos right. are still not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it's just a very different interaction and feeling. Like, I mean, if you want vintage now, you can go to Etsy or you can follow one of the tens of thousands of amazing vintage curators on Instagram Mm -hmm. and go directly to their websites. Like you don't really need eBay or some of these other places anymore when you can go directly to these sellers and give them the money. Because I mean, truth be told, I'd rather give them the money than have them giving 20% or more sometimes to the apps. I know. I know. I, I'm i consistently shocked by the fees on Poshmark. Like, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it, it, it didn't really sink into me like fully until I sold something for $100 and received like 70 of it. And I was like – 80. 80. Should be 80. Unless you, unless you gave free shipping. I think I gave free shipping. See? Oh, you yeah, know? There you and go. I was like uh, – <laughs> What? <laughs> like, what have I done? You know? And so I think the, I think that's a pretty high fee. Um, that said, I mean, Poshmark gets you instant access to like a gajillion mm-hmm. people. So it's like a marketing cost almost. That's how I look at it, honestly, that Poshmark does actually do a really good job for me um, as far as marketing. And my items are constantly showing up in their ads on Google. So I'm, I'm usually one of the top ones if I have that product that's being searched. Um, But that's also coupled with the fact that I take high quality images 
do full descriptions, use keywords. Like I try to make the most of it because I know that they're running these ads and I want to be the person who has their listing in that ad because mm-hmm. it's invaluable. So, and they want, and, and vice versa, I think they want people like me who have those good photos and good items to be featured because it gets them a higher conversion rate. So they have a customer who's seeing that ad more likely to click on it if they're seeing the exact item that they're looking for that looks like it has a stock photo and even though it's my original photos, um, it's just better for them overall. Yeah, totally, totally. And your photos are like, very professional. So <laughs> it's it's actually becoming a problem. I'm not even going to lie. I didn't even think that this I never thought that this would be an issue. But on a daily basis, I get comments like, "Can you show real photos of the <gasps> actual item, please?" Like, "Can you post real photos of this? Is this the actual item being sold?" And I'm just like, "Oh my gosh, yes!" Like, <laughs> it's my photos. I've even had people tell me they're going to report me for using stock photos. I'm like, "Go, please go to my Poshmark closet and take a look for two seconds, and you will see that these are all my photos." <laughs> like, wow, that's. So, so maybe funny. I've maybe I've gone too far. I mean, they know? do look really good, but like I guess if I was gonna before I was gonna accuse someone of using stock photos, I'd probably <laughs> take a screenshot of their photo and do a, re- a Google reverse image search. Just saying, guys, if you're gonna troll, I don't yeah, troll I mean, correctly. I don't even think that they're trying to troll. I think they <laughs> genuinely just think that I'm like not I'm, that I'm lying. You know, <laughs> like I've had people like generally be like. That's no, they're not. They're not your photos. I want a real photo. I'm like, yo, seriously, just, just throw it on the floor. <laughs> Make sure that your phone lens is really dirty. Just take your I know. Right? <laughs> Be sure it's really wrinkly too. I'm like, here I am investing thousands of dollars <laughs> into like getting my photos to look like you know I'm the revolve of used clothing or something, <laughs> and people are like, no, no, it's too much. <laughs> please, <laughs> please stop. So did you transition directly from eBay to Poshmark or was there like an in-between? No. Okay. Yeah. So there was definitely an in-between. I worked in marketing and did um, experiential marketing events and I was a producer for a while. And in funny fact there, I actually did marketing events for eBay. <laughs> Even though I couldn't sell on their platform. Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, classic. Very. So, you know, I did that in between and – you know, pursued a career in marketing while I was sort of reselling on the side at markets. I did pop-up shops. There used to be this bar on the Upper West Side that I would, in their back room, do like full clothing pop-ups where I'd like bring hundreds of pieces of clothing, set up racks, invite people. I had like an email list and I would just tell people to come and then they would tell their friends and they'd come to this back room and have a drink and like shop through the clothes. That's pretty cool. It was actually pretty fun. I still, you know, know some of the people who used to see that and they're like, oh my gosh, Jade, I never expected you to go from like, this backroom bar situation <laughs> to like having a shop or something. I was like, neither did I, I promise. <laughs> so but yeah, so I did that in between. Uh-huh. For how long? Oh, honestly, I don't know. Maybe like three years uh, before I joined Poshmark. I think I joined Poshmark in 2013. Yeah. In 20, September of 2013. That's, that's like early, early. Yeah. 
It was so different back then. Yeah, 18 months, I think, after they had started. Wow. And I had a, like heard about Poshmark before that because you know I was already so into this type of stuff. Um, but I just kind of didn't join because I was so soured from my eBay experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, but when I when I joined, it was very hard for me to understand it in the beginning. I was like, wait, what's going on? What are these parties? And I think people are still confused me by too. this. Me too. Me too. Can you explain mm- it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when I got on there, I was like, what is a party? Why do I why are you keep inviting me to this? Who's who is this person inviting me? And it's like Poshmark, it's the app, you know, <laughs> inviting me. <laughs> um and so I didn't like I just used it as sort of like this dumping ground for stuff that I felt wasn't worth much, that I wasn't like selling, you know, for high somewhere else, like at consignment shops or, you know, in my own pop-ups and stuff. And so I just started listing stuff on there very inexpensively. And I thought of it as kind of like a lowbrow place to sell, like you're forever 21 mm-hmm. sort of a thing. I was wrong. I will fully admit that I was completely wrong and I wish that I had, you know, amped up much quicker on the app. And by the time I like started selling full time on it, it wasn't until 20, oh no, wait, 2016, 2015, 2016, um, that I started taking it more seriously. And, you know, my husband was kind of like, I don't know. I don't know if you could do this full time on this app. Like, it doesn't seem like it's bringing in that much money. You're kind of doing a lot on it. You're getting like 400 bucks a week. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. And then I started utilizing Poshmark's marketing tools a bit better, um, like their price drop option. You know, they didn't have a lot of the other marketing tools that they have now back Mm -hmm. then, but you still could do price drops and it would notify people like that you were dropping your price and that would bring in a lot of sales. I didn't really know this for a while. And right before my husband and I were leaving for a trip um, for his cousin's wedding, we had like no money. (laughs) It's like, I honestly don't know how we're going to do this Um, and be gone for, you know, three weeks in Europe when we have no cash. So I was like, let's just like drop. We had a thousand items listed on Poshmark, which now is like a small amount of what we have listed there. And I was like, let's just drop the prices of every item every single day for four days in a row before we leave. So like if it hasn't sold on the first day, it's getting dropped again the next day and the next day and the next day. And we sold like $3,500 in sales in like three and a half days. What? That's amazing. And it was over 4th of July weekend in 2016. And I was like, oh my gosh, like – there's more to this, and I have not been giving it the credit that it deserves. <laughs> I told my husband, I said, when I get home, I'm going to give an honest try at like seeing if this platform could be worth it. I'm going to like really buckle down and learn everything that I can learn about it. I'm going to you know list as much as I can list on it. I'm going to see what the top brands are that are selling, et cetera, et cetera. And well, I never went back. So <laughs> it was Poshmark to the moon that's, for me. That's amazing. So you, st- I mean, you have your own website now, right? Where you sell yeah. directly to customers. Mm-hmm. You also have a store, but you're yes. still selling on Poshmark too, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, and would you say that's still like your biggest channel? No. Um, it's pretty. 
it's pretty even with my website. Um, and then, you know, my storefront is still only like a month old. So I don't really know how well it's going to perform overall yet. But Poshmark is just really steady for me. I know what sells on there. Mm-hmm. I know how to work the platform. Um, and so I just – walking away from it would be really silly. So basically everything's cross-posted onto my website mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I kind of leave it like that. But I also sell um, bulk inventory to resellers through my website. So that generates a good amount of um, income for me through my website. And that's the bulk of the income from my website. So my website's you know bulk of income that comes in is not from those single pieces like I'm selling on Poshmark. Because I don't run any ads or anything like that. So Poshmark isn't something I would move away from at this point because I'm not putting the same amount of like effort into my website in order to bring those customers in. Mm-hmm. There's no way you're doing all this by yourself. I mean, Poshmark no. alone is like a 60-hour-a-week job minimum. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you you build different ways of, <laughs> of relieving some of the work. Um, it is a lot of work, though. I have a lot of friends who will be like, oh, I'll just like sell some of my stuff on Poshmark. And then like a week or two later, they come to me like, they're just like, just take it. Because <laughs> yeah, it's I'm so lot. sick of answering these people's questions. <laughs> I don't want to ship this out. I'm busy. Like, I, you know, I, I sent this to one girl and it had like a tiny pen mark on it and it got sent back. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, welcome. <laughs> yeah. I had I had a couple last year before the pandemic, two really weird, like kind of like, I don't know, nasty people on Poshmark who were like harassing me. And I was like, please just let what? me give you your money back. And I, you know, I messaged customer service and they were actually like, well, the recipient, the buyer has to initiate the refund process. You can't. Right. And I was like, okay, cool. And I messaged the person. Well, not even, this is all happening on the product page, right? Because we can't message <laughs> right. one another. And like, hey, I just talked to customer service. Just tell them we're going to refund your money, whatever. Crickets. The one person was like, <laughs> you've ruined my life. I wanted what? to treat myself to something f- nice for a change. It was seriously... Jade, it was a Zara so dress intense. that I sold them for ten dollars. Um, <laughs> it's always, it's always the very least expensive <laughs> items I pr- like that have the most like backlash. Yeah, always, always, right? And this dress was in mint condition, and when she received it, she said that it smelled like gasoline or some other dangerous <laughs> chemical and it was so bad that her mom made her put it in the garage and the smell was so what bad that they were ever. afraid the dog was gonna die stop and I was like this is not true seriously yeah and I was like um I don't know how that could have happened like we don't have any gasoline in my house and wait I use like wait until they find out that most of their um clothing is made from petroleum I know I know and this was a Zara dress so we know we can yeah we can confirm that this one was and I was like it's so weird I use fragrance-free laundry detergent I hung it to dry like I said, I don't live in an oil refinery. And the only thing I could think of, if this whole thing – I know. They're a liar, right? Or am I? It's hard to say. You. You're the liar. Me and my <laughs> oil refinery life. <laughs> and yeah. um, and I, the weird thing that had happened is – this is pre-pandemic. So this is before the whole world of shipping got crazy there for a while. Mm. But I shipped mm-hmm. it and it kind of like 
disappeared from tracking for a few days. And I'm like, at that point, did it go to an oil refinery? (laughs) I don't understand how this dress that had been washed in, like hand washed in fragrance free detergent and hang dried had suddenly become so fumy that it had to be in a garage. <laughs> it yeah, it seems like a like a really extreme situation there. <laughs> I know. And this person had just been trying to treat themselves to something good for once in their life. That was literally something that they said and it had gone well. completely wrong and I had ruined it for them and I was like, "Please let me give you your money back." <laughs> yeah, like just please. I really don't want to fight you over this. Yeah, like, like it's not take worth your ten dollars and go treat yourself again. Um. Anyway, I was. I, this is the. I mean, this is the world of selling online, right? Like it is. Um, yeah. eBay. I mean, even back in the golden era of eBay, I would get weird comments sometimes that made no sense. You know, and it would be like there was a little bit of lint on the cuff. <laughs> like I want my money back. Three stars. <laughs> you know? I honestly, that's okay. One really amazing thing about Poshmark that I love, 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 love is that <clears throat> the ratings, they don't really matter that much. Like they <laughs> do matter <laughs> because if you like dip below a certain rating, like you lose some sort of like ambassador status. But I mean, I've sold like over 25,000 items on their app or something. So like it's almost impossible for me to like go up or down in my rating. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think mine's at 4.9 and that'll never change unless like, you know, something drastic happens. But I don't even look at them anymore. Like I don't even look at the ratings anymore because randomly when I do go and look, I'll see the weirdest comments and on them like one star because of something like that. And I'm just like, I just don't even want to see it. Like, <laughs> it just feels like an, a pointless way to upset myself over nothing, you know, something I can't even change at that point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because if it were so bad, they would have asked for a refund. They would have filed a claim with customer service. It's just someone having a bad day. Yeah. You know? And I, yeah. And I don't even think about it now when there are returns because they just come in, they go downstairs. My husband, so speaking of people who help me, um, my husband works in the business and so does my best friend, Anna. Uh, and my husband handles all of like the shipping, all of our numbers, um, like all of like cleaning and repairs, like shoes, bags. And he like photographs and lists all of those as well. So he's got quite a job on his hands, but now I'm just like tossing those returns down to him. Like, go ahead. <laughs> like, I don't even want to see it. I don't even want to know what's returned. And I hardly even fight the returns anymore unless I go and look at it and it is something like egregious, you know, uh-huh. like you're saying, oh, she drenched it in gasoline or something. Then I'll be like, no, I didn't. <laughs> you know, I didn't. <laughs> or if they're telling me something's fake that I know is authentic, um, I get that sometimes because I feel like that's a, a easy way for people to return things. So if this Lululemon is fake, and I'm like, I have been selling Lululemon for 12 years. I 100% can guarantee you my hands have touched more Lululemon than, you know, your yoga instructor. So like, <laughs> I know that it's not fake and I know how to find, you know, the documentation of pretty much every single piece of Lululemon ever. And you're not going to win this one because I will come with all of the photos from the original Lululemon website, you know, whatever. Um, 
but those are the only ones that I'll fight because sometimes it's it's almost kind of fun to have that challenge of being like, hmm, I will find this long chomp bag and it's exact, you know, whatever, if you think it's fake. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've only had a return once, like, like received a return on something I sold in Poshmark. And I still can't figure out why the person returned it, but I think that sometimes people just have buyer's remorse. Oh, yeah. Right? That's what and it really because, is. Yeah. And on Poshmark, unlike, you know, eBay, right? eBay has cultivated this really nasty buyer that has come out of eBay where they're like, they will return for anything. They will make things up. They will rip your stuff. They will – they know that eBay is going to side with them no matter what, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thankfully, Poshmark is not that way. Um, they seem to be much more of an even keel when it comes to returns. So – you know, they also have the rule that you can't return for fit. So if you buy your, you know, you buy a certain item, you buy the size, whatever, if it doesn't fit you, you can't return it for that reason. Because of that, that's when some other, you know, workarounds start to happen with people trying to return things for other reasons. You know, they'll tell you that anything is fake in order to return it because you then have, then the burden of proof is on you. Then you have to prove to Poshmark that it's indeed authentic. Mm -hmm. And if you can't prove that with like a receipt, sometimes they want a receipt. I'm like, please, (laughs) (laughs) you want a receipt for this, you know, 10 year old Gucci piece that I sold for, you know, a hundred dollars. Like it's not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. I don't have a receipt for that and you know it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So then you have to like let them return those things. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, and sometimes it's just like not worth the argument, right? I do. I will say that something I really appreciate about Poshmark that I really, really noticed a lot around the holidays is like while shipping was suddenly the world's worst nightmare for mm-hmm. anyone selling anything, they were super communicative to buyers and they really supported sellers and they really held a lot of hands uh, like in terms of inf- like constantly providing information about where things were and what was happening and your expectations around when you might receive something whereas Etsy rather than doing the same thing Poshmark did instead didn't back up customers at all i mean sellers at all and let people leave tons of shitty ratings for slow shipping. Oh, no. And only the only thing they did to address the situation was put a banner on their site that said, shipping is slow, buy a gift card instead. Like, what? What? <laughs> That's not helpful. I know. I know. And I saw, I mean, all of my friends who sell on Etsy and like that's their business had a terrible December. A kind of a terrible January, too, because they were still getting harassed by people. I know. And I would always cite, like, wow, Poshmark did such a good job of just being very clear and open and, like, protecting their sellers. In the beginning, it was pretty scary, though, as sellers because we were shipping out all this stuff and it was not moving. Um, And some of it wasn't even scanning in. Oh, yeah. And so then people were allowed after seven days to cancel those orders. And so I had things like $300 items, you know, whatever people were ordering for Christmas getting canceled. (gasps) And I was losing my mind because I had like $7,000 worth of stuff like (gasps) either (gasps) lost or canceled or, you know, something else. And I was like, Poshmark, like what's happening? I'm freaking out. My stuff is not scanning in. Like 
I took it to the post office like I always do, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it was like really scary at one point. And Poshmark was like, well, we can't really do anything if you haven't scanned it in. And I was like, all right, fine then. I'm going to figure out a way to make sure all of these things get scanned in. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I went to one of my like contacts at USPS and was like, listen, you know I dropped these off. I know I dropped these off. I don't know where the heck you guys put them. But – they need to be scanned in because you never scanned them and I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> like, <laughs> thankfully, you know, there's – I go in there every single day. So, like, there's enough trust built up that they were like, okay, we're not supposed to do this. But, like, you promise you dropped all these off? I'm like, yes, you told me you would scan them. <laughs> like, you didn't. Like, this is not my fault. <laughs> and so they were able to scan those items in. And then, oh, of course, they magically started tracking. <laughs> of course. But there was so they much of that. magically started showing up. Oh, Man, you got to feel bad for everyone who was working at the USPS then because it sounds oh, like 100%. it was a shit show, you know? And yeah. we've we've all had a job that was a shit show, and it sucks. And I was really sympathetic. I mean, I remember buying something from Poshmark the first week of December, and I received it the third week of January. <laughs> no way. It had like – it was the weirdest thing. It I want to say it was shipping from somewhere outside Philadelphia – the tracking showed it going to Maine. Did you get it for free at the end of it? No, I'm too nice. I just was like, uh, this isn't anyone's fault. The USPS shipped it to Maine, and then it got there, and they were like, oh, shit, this isn't where it goes. <laughs> and so they sent it back, but the, it somehow it ended up like in the south somewhere, and it was just hanging out there for weeks. I had reached the point where I was like, that okay, so I'm weird. setting a calendar reminder, and if it hasn't arrived by this date, I'm going to cancel the order because this is ridiculous, right. and it arrived just in the nick of time. I I just – I knew I knew things sucked. I had a microphone that I had sent to a guest that was just hanging out in Virginia for four weeks. Jeez. Who knows where? It just, like, disappeared from tracking. It just, like, didn't update anymore. Every day I would just get this message that was like, your package is going to be delayed or whatever, and I was like, yeah, no shit. It's like, Ugh. you know, it- and something that was was a bummer for Poshmark sellers is that Poshmark has that USPS contract until 2024. Ooh. So wow. they cannot, sh- yeah, <laughs> they can't ship with anything else. So we're kind of like stuck only shipping. You can only ship with the Poshmark labels and they are all priority mail USPS. So you can't even ship at a lower rate. You can't ship with another carrier. So when we knew all of these problems were happening with USPS and were going to continue to happen for a period of time, and meanwhile, you're looking over at FedEx, who I love FedEx. Um, they've always done an amazing job for me, mm-hmm. who is just like kicking butt over there, getting their stuff out. And you're like, can we please <laughs> – can we please <laughs> be able to ship through something else, you know? Yeah. Like, can we have that option? And Poshmark is actually doing some back-end uh, trials, actually, of fulfillment of shipping and warehouse fulfillment, and they're doing it with brands. So they're not even – they're not doing it with any of their sellers, which, trust me, I've complained about already. <laughs> um <laughs> But they're allowing them to drop ship, so like sell things on Poshmark, like free people is doing this. Okay, 
I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you because I specifically know free people. I knew that was coming for a while. Brands and retailers are trying to get in on this because they're like, that's the future. You know, mm. um, two years ago, they were all trying to get in on rental and they realized like that's a really hard business to start. It's yes. really expensive. Uh, you yes. need to build computer systems from the ground up. The you can you can complain about the shortcomings of Poshmark or Depop or Etsy all you want, but like the fact of the matter is that those platforms are wildly expensive and complicated yes. to build and maintain. Yes. And so I think these retailers are getting in over their heads with that. And also like <clears throat> what yeah. good luck pulling people away from Poshmark or Depop or Mercari or eBay or all these other right. sites that are out there. <clears throat> I or just good luck competing with Instagram. <laughs> that too. Because right? they're all gonna go out of business when Instagram and um freaking TikTok when people can just resell their shit right from their own platforms where they've built their own base, right? Mm -hmm. Like they don't they don't need to go on these secondhand platforms all the time. Like I know people who make six figures selling on their Instagram and they have like 15,000 followers. Right. Good luck competing in that landscape. If you haven't already launched your platform, you're done. It's too late already. The yeah. competition is too tight. And the other thing that I've noticed is that a lot of these retailers are so hung up on the idea of like curation and lifestyle mm -hmm. and telling stories. And guess what? You can't do that with secondhand. I mean, Poshmark, the aesthetic is fine. They're not trying to sell you a way of life, an aspirational lifestyle. It is a means to an end. And it's a platform that works. You know, you can't go in there and be like, yes, but I want my platform to be boho and, <laughs> uh, you know, wellness and like whatever. Like it's just too niche for a resale market, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, I already, knowing this so well, it also just irritates me to the core that they don't tap actual resellers to help in these projects. <laughs> um, yeah. Like, yeah. why would you not be tapping into these resellers who, like, many of us, like, I know other resellers who've been doing it for 20 years as well, started when they were 15, you know? So, like, there are people who've been doing this for a really long time, but why wouldn't you be seeking out the top reselling um, sellers on these platforms and tapping them and paying them for their information and bringing them in to run your, your shit, you know? Like, I, I'm very confused agree. by this because I could help them save a lot of time. <laughs> So yeah, I feel like these brands are getting in over their heads, but I do see, like I've seen free people on Poshmark mm -hmm. and I was like, I know this is their way of testing out this idea. And I, I feel like it's really unfair to people who are selling yes. or resellers on Poshmark, whether it's people like you who it's actually your full-time job. Or just the casual person who shops a lot of free people and wants to clean out their closet. Because how do you compete you can't. with brand new stuff at that price? You cannot. And you cannot compete with their stock photos. You can't compete because there are things that they are on there selling that, okay, it was originally $158 and they're selling it for 30 bucks new tags. I'm like, are you guys just dumb? Because you can get a lot more money for this, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, you're bringing down our entire marketplace, like you're, you're, you're ruining it. You know, now people who are taking the time to sift through product at thrift stores and save it from landfills, 
right? Who are cleaning it, mm-hmm. steaming it, photographing it, and doing all of this work for it. Now they're having to compete with you who's trying to get rid of your excess inventory that you overproduced in the first place. Like, not okay. Yeah. And I actually have I I've spoken it. directly to Poshmark about this and expressed those feelings and I expressed the feelings of a lot of people in the community, you know, the Poshmark community on social media that came to me and, you know, told me how they were feeling. And Poshmark was like, well, it's, you know, it's still just a test right now. We're just seeing like how it goes. So we didn't know that we needed to notify you guys. And we're like, we, I sell professionally on your app. Like I need to know these things because I'll stop buying free people then. If you are going to promote this closet, if you are going to allow them to drop ship, you're allowing them to use their own shipping methods, which we're not allowed to do. Like, and what? it's so much cheaper for them. They're shipping. Trust me. Oh, I know. It's a couple bucks. Oh, I know. You know, and I, yeah, I when I talk to resellers, one brand that comes up all the time that is a guaranteed sale is free people. You know, like people are looking for free people. To resell, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's not like it was just some random no-name brand. It's not like it was H&M, which would seem to me to have less resale No, but they've got Levi's on Poshmark selling their stuff now. (sighs) Are you serious? And Levi's also has its own resale program. You know, I think that they're just just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't don't know. I don't understand, like, why – I mean, Poshmark believes that by bringing these brands on, that it's going to help all of us. This is what they've told me, right? That they feel that it's going to bring in more people to the app if people know that there's a official free people closet. I'm like, but but why? They shouldn't – I don't know. I try to like say that there should be some ground rules at least for these brands. Like they shouldn't be allowed to sell things on Poshmark for lower than they put it on their own website. So <laughs> if they never dropped the price below 50% of its original retail on their website, then they shouldn't be able to come over on Poshmark with a brand new product and sell it below that, right? You're just turning it into like mm-hmm. a discount warehouse over here. Like it just – ruins it. And I know plenty of people who purchase the overstock of free people. And, you know, that's part of how they make their living and stuff. It's like, do you guys, I don't know. I don't, maybe it's just like frustrating to me being a reseller. I just feel like, do you have to be in every, like have your hand in every jar? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's because like, I'll tell you as a person working in this industry, well, not working in the industry anymore, but you know, a year ago, this is what we would hear all the time. And I still read all the publications and it's like secondhand is coming. Save your business. And, you know, I look at a lot of these brands who are getting involved and the reality is that they are really struggling to keep up as their core customer gets older. Mm, mm-hmm. And they're not appealing to Gen Z right. who is going to be the one spending all the money going forward because they don't it's just like it's not an appealing premise to them. Like they feel old or ingenuine or, you know, mm-hmm. Gen Z buys secondhand first. Yeah. And I think that rather than like doing the work to make these their brands relevant in a real way, um, they're just like, let's go to Poshmark and get involved in that. You know, like let's just – it's not even secondhand. That's the thing that also mm, just like yep. really bugs me is that this is stuff that is new with tags in the poly bags sitting in the warehouse. 
hundred percent is all brand new stuff. And they're, you know, doing drops on Poshmark, like, oh, these items are coming this week or whatever. It's like, what do you mean? Like it's on your website. What is this? <laughs> like, so I will weird. tell you that for all the brands that I have seen selling directly on Poshmark, they are selling their inventory that they couldn't sell during the pandemic because I saw all of this stuff at the trade shows right, right before the pandemic. True. And so they're using Poshmark as an outlet. And that's not what Poshmark is. You know, sell your stuff to TJ Maxx or something because Poshmark's yeah. not TJ Maxx. Right. I agree. I mean, yeah, I, I, I would just like to see brands go in the direction of less <laughs> production of product. Um, and I think that if they really, if they really understood and wanted to be a part of resale and actually grow that sector, they would start producing less. They would produce higher quality items that would last longer, mm -hmm. so that they would last into being resold multiple times. They would raise the prices of their items so that they can pay the initial fair wages and everything that needs to be done properly and to produce more sustainably. And when you have products like that in the resale world, right, if there's not a lot of it, it becomes a coveted item and it can continue to resell close to its retail price. But the more of it you produce, the less and less and less it's worth, resell or otherwise. Mm -hmm. So if they want to be in on this resale game, it would just seem so much smarter to me to produce less. And sure, if you want to try and get your product back and then resell it because you know it's worth something at that point because there isn't a lot of it and people are searching for it. And because, you know, Pinterest lasts forever, you can see something on Pinterest that was in the store five years ago, and then you go searching for it. Mm -hmm. There are plenty mm -hmm. of people who do that. And I have this way of thinking with my secondhand stuff that I sell. I'm like, this, every single piece is somebody's favorite item they can't find. And mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. true with so many things. So I don't know. I just think produce less, raise your prices, make it higher quality. Um, and, you know, you already – you know, you already box out most people from being able to buy your product new anyways when you have products that are over $100. So I don't know. I would just go for like long, longer lasting things that will withstand multiple wearers and multiple uses and maintain their value. It's interesting because this is 100% what they need to be doing. And I'm wondering – when and if they're going to see the writing on the wall. Because before the pandemic, everybody wanted to get into rental. Like, that was it. Like, you had, like, yeah. New York and company doing rental, you know? Another mistake. And Taylor. You can't have your own rental websites for every single brand. Not everybody's that dedicated to your brand. It was bizarre. Like, who would sign up for that? I There's not no one store that I would only rent from, right? you know? Um, but so all of these retailers were getting in on rental. That's what my last mm -hmm. job was for a rental service. And the thing is, people wanted to rent out their own stuff, but they didn't think it through. And I don't know if they didn't realize this or if they did but just didn't want to admit, admit it to themselves. But the reality is that these brands were not making clothing that could last yep. for multiple rentals. And so rental, these clothes were getting rented one time and coming back and having to be damaged out <laughs> because that's how low quality they were. 
And like, you would think there would have been some alarm bells for some of these retailers, like, hey, maybe we're not ready for rental, or maybe we should drastically change the way we make Mm -hmm. clothes so that we can do rental, because we think that's the future. And it's the same thing right now. If you really want to get into secondhand, you have to realize that you're not making clothes that are going to last. What is the hardest thing about reselling? I mean, because this is like what you do now. Oh, yeah. You know? Um, I think the hardest thing about reselling over time has been getting people to understand what I do and to appreciate it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, people come with some really negative views on it and perspectives that I find very confusing you know, that like everything is dirty and disgusting. And I'm like, no, you'd be surprised at how many brand new things just make their way towards the trash, like all the time. It's sad. It is sad. Yeah. Um, or that, or that I'm stealing from the poor. Um, and I'm like, I literally am the poor. Thank you. So (laughs) sorry that I'm trying to make a living from my, what I learned while living in poverty. (laughs) Like, are you really mad at me for this? Right. It's it's really confusing to me because I'm like, I don't steal from any poor people. This is all headed to the trash. I think they have this idea that, you know, the clothing that is secondhand is meant for poor people. And oh God, there's so many things about that that really piss me off. Um, First of all, you know, the whole argument that everything in thrift stores are, you know, meant for poor people to buy. So like, how dare you purchase it? I don't actually even purchase things from thrift stores or that are even on the thrift store floor ever. Like there's so much product that they can never get to. There's so much product that they don't want or need or that they don't even know is worth anything or that they don't care about because they don't have that specific training and they certainly don't have the, like, you know, if you're a sorter at Goodwill or any Salvation Army, whatever, you're not going to have 20 years generally, right, of experience of reselling product brand by brand, so, you know, you're just picking it. Is it like look okay or does it not, you know? And so they just kind of like toss yeah. it back and forth. So there's so much product that's left over that's completely fine that, you know, is is worth money that they just aren't even able to put out on their floors. Um, but I think also the most triggering part of that argument to me is that this idea that people who are poor have the time to thrift shop. Oh my God. I'm so glad you said that. As a almost lifelong poor person, (laughs) I have to say that like I did not have the time for that because I had to work. Right. Because I had to take the bus Mm -hmm. everywhere and it would take like an hour and I had a kid and like sometimes we needed to sleep. I need to clean the house. (laughs) Did you have to sleep? (laughs) I know. Crazy talk, right? Should have been thrifting as a poor person. But I agree. I hear that all the time. There's this idea, and I don't think people mean it intentionally, but in their mind, the poor people, in quotes, get up every day and they head off to the thrift store to get their allotment of poor people clothes. (laughs) It's just so confusing to me because I'm, you know, if you go thrift shopping for yourself, for personal wear, right? It is very difficult. I can go through an entire, I could go to eight thrift stores in a day and come out with maybe two to three items that fit me properly. And that I actually wanted and was looking for. And that's why I spent an entire day, eight hours doing it. And, you know, maybe it may be different for the Gen Z, you know, 
young girls who are fitting into a lot of things or wearing things oversized or remaking oversized t-shirts. But for, you know, other people who may not have straight size bodies, it's not as easy to just go into a thrift shop and find outfits for yourself to wear, especially if you're going looking for something specific. I can tell you that going into most thrift stores in America, and if you're going to look for something specific for work, something specific for an event, finding your size, something that looks good on you and is what you're looking for, I mean, it's not easy. It takes a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And that time, you know, whether you're poor or wealthy, whatever it may be, is still worth money to you. It's still time you could be mm-hmm. working or you could be spending with your family or children or doing your chores, whatever it may be. So by having all of these platforms now where people can go and buy online, they can just look up what it is that they're looking for and be able to find it a lot easier, right? It's like curated. It's already been cleaned. You don't have to worry about having stains or holes or whatever else because people are going to describe that to you. And you know it might be worth it to pay you know, $15 more in order to just save all of that time and effort. And I I also think people aren't realizing like how much money is going to these fast fashion brands like Fashion Nova instead of thrift stores. Yes. They are getting beaten out. They are thrift stores are being undercut by fast fashion by a long shot. You can get exactly what you're looking for, multiple outfits all brand new with tags. Why would you go to the thrift store when it costs the same amount or more money at the thrift? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I I think that's really interesting right there because the criticism I hear the most often about both thrift stores and reselling is that the thrift stores are too expensive now and the resellers are jacking up the price. And I – well, first off, okay, I think you're you're confused about the value of clothing, which to be fair is is understandable because like you said – Fashion Nova will sell you brand new clothing that is cheaper than the clothing you could get at most at almost any thrift yeah. store, really. And it's not because thrift stores are too expensive. It's because Fashion Nova is playing with the concept of value. Yeah. And they're not selling you stuff that's going to last. They're using terrible materials. They're paying poverty wages to everyone involved. I mean, Fashion Nova has had so many allegations of wage theft al- alone, you know? Right. Like, they they are not doing anything good no. to get clothes to be that cheap. And what happens is it suddenly makes you think that all shirts, when they're brand new, should be $5. <laughs> or that it's and possible. So therefore, or that it's even possible. And it's possible. I know. And in any ethical environmentally friendly way, right? And also like this this concept of that, right, is I think something that's also being missed is that, yeah, they use these really inexpensive pieces as well to lure you in to the website or to lure you into being a customer of theirs or purchasing from them because you're like, well, I can get, you know, this slinky little white dress for 10 bucks on Fashion Nova. I can get other things there too. And not everything is $10 or $15. I mean, you can go on Fashion Nova and find something mm-hmm. that's a hundred bucks. Like you can. So, you know, they're they're biting into that market as well. And without even realizing it, then you're spending, you know, so much more money on their website for an inferior product than you would probably get most other places at the same price if it's a you know above $50, let's say. Um 
just because you're like, oh, well, this must be the cheapest place to get it because everything here is the Mm -hmm. cheapest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. It manipulates you. But it also puts this little like post-it in your brain that dresses should be $10, right? Brand new. And so, (laughs) you know, clothes depreciate in value most of the time, especially if it's a fast fashion, Adam. Mm-hmm. It's just like, you know, people are like, oh, if you the moment you drive the car off the dealer's lot, like the value, you know, cut, is cut in half or something. Clothing, it's even more extreme. So if you in your mind have this little post-it that says dresses are $10, brand new, and you go to a thrift store and the dresses there are more than $2, $3, you feel like that thrift store is too expensive. But the fallacy there is that dresses should never be $10 brand new. And so a $10 secondhand dress is still a smoking hot deal. And I think I've seen different people on social media kind of having to like put out fires with trolls who are like, I can't believe you're charging $40 for this secondhand sweater. And it's like (laughs) – you should have seen it when it came yeah, into it, my hands. Like it had pilling all over it. It was dirty. It was cleaned. We steam it. We photograph it. I pay a model. We we list it. We describe it. We ship it to your door. Those are things we add value to something. And I think that that's being missed. You know, it's like we don't just I don't just pick something up out of, of a you know rack <laughs> and say like oh here buy this for ten times the amount. Like, it doesn't. I know I, put, um, I have to put work yeah, into it. I will it. just say anybody. I used to get upset when I would see comments like that on people's Instagram and I want to like reason with people. And even though it wasn't even my Instagram, I just wanted to swoop in there. <laughs> and then I was like, you know what? That person, that person doesn't thrift because if they did, they would know, oh my God, that person probably spent eight hours of thrifting just to find that because I never see that when I'm thrifting. That's a score. And it probably right. smelled weird. I swear to God, half the stuff I see <laughs> at the thrift smells like gain and I can't with that. And it's like extreme, mm-hmm. you know, or it smells like cigarette smoke or it was pilly or it had a slight stain because it was at the thrift store for a reason, you know. They, they don't see right. that there's so – they don't know because they don't go thrifting that like you have to put it work into things you thrift if you're lucky enough to find it in the first place. And that – then I'm like, I'm not going to deal with this person. They just need to go thrifting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and understand. <laughs> like, that's why everybody who I know who sells secondhand is like an expert on laundry, you know, an expert yeah. on yeah. simple repairs, an expert on brands yes. and spotting, you know, counterfeits. And they know like the history of clothing and they know what people like. And that's also a whole series of special skills and talents. Absolutely. And I tell resellers all the time, you know, when I speak to them, like, don't devalue yourself because you have a skill set. And, you know, 10 years ago, I heard nothing but like, oh, get a real job. Oh, do something better with your time. Like, well, this is nothing. Oh, you're just selling like dirty clothes on the internet. You're (laughs) like, you you don't have any skills, you know, get her just, oh my gosh, it it was so much, you know? And I was like, no, I really like what I'm doing. (laughs) Like, I'm going to keep doing it. Thanks. (laughs) Well, what do you love about doing it? Literally everything. I will spend (laughs) all of my time doing it. And it, it's the perfect job for me because I'm so wrapped up in it and so into it. Like even if I have a day off, all I want to do is do my work stuff because it was 
it's just, I, I enjoy it. It's just fun for me. I enjoy like going through the clothes. I enjoy seeing things get cleaned and repaired. And then it's really exciting when something sells. Um, I enjoy seeing things on people. Like when I get photos, you know, when people tag me or they send them to my Instagram or whatever of them wearing something that they got from me, like it really makes me feel like I get to then be a part of this person's day, you know, like they brought me with them in some kind of way because I like, I found this piece and then they loved it so much that they purchased it and then were wearing it and like are thanking me like, oh, I love it so much. It fits me so well and I'm so happy. And then they also didn't have to buy something new and they saved money. I don't know. There are just so many good things. Like everything about it is awesome to me. Um, and now having the shop, it's become this whole other layer of excitement because I get to talk to people and see people in person and trying on in person. And I'm like a giddy little kid, like, oh my God, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it looks so cute on you. Like, <laughs> And I'm running around the store, like looking for what else I have in their size or what would fit them or, you know, what they like. Um, and I had a woman come in the other day who was having like a film that she had directed premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. And so she came wow. in like looking for a piece and, um, you know, oh, what do you have for me? And I get to look around and like have her try on all these dresses and things. And it was just like, it's just like that really fun experience for me. And seeing people in the clothes is exciting. And knowing that it was going to be thrown away or was going to be shipped overseas or, you know, or ragged or whatever else was going to happen to it. You know, like I said, at this point, I'm not getting stuff that is going onto a thrift store floor. Like that's not where my sourcing comes from anymore. It is stuff that is done. Like they're, they're done with it and there's still a lot of really good stuff in there. It's just that so much stuff that good stuff gets tossed. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's too much for these thrift stores to stay on top of. And they – it's not like they have fashion experts working in the back sorting. No, and they don't want to. I mean, they don't want to pay for it. Jade will be back on Sunday, and we're going to be talking more about all things secondhand. We'll be talking about the dark side of a lot of the bigger thrift store chains. And I know that sounds like clickbait, but guess what? It's also true. We'll be talking about the myth or is it delusion of clothing recycling? Imagine that I just said that in quotes. And we'll be talking about thread up. So please come back for that one because it's so good. And if you have any thoughts about resale, about big brands getting in on it or anything else that Jade and I talked about, please reach out. You know, you can call the Close Horse Hotline. You can send me an email. You can record a voice message and send that via email. And you'll find all of that information for contacting me in the show notes. You can find Jade at fashionwithouttrashin.com and on Instagram as at fashionwithouttrashin. And of course, that will also be in the show notes. Her Instagram, I can't recommend it highly enough. It is an incredible resource for any of you who are looking to build your secondhand business or just learn more about it. She's always sharing a lot of really good information in her stories. So remember when Jade talked about places like Fashion Nova sort of getting you through the door with a $10 dress, but then selling you more expensive stuff too while you're there? 
Well, that's an actual retail slash buying slash merchandising strategy. Even grocery stores use it, where it's often referred to as a loss leader. For example, a lot of grocery stores sell rotisserie chickens as a loss leader. They make little to no profit off of rotisserie chickens, but that's okay because their hope is that when you come in the door for that reasonably priced pre-made chicken dinner, you'll also stock up on some other things while you're there. You know, because you already made the trip to the store. And the store will make more profit and more revenue off of the yogurt and the dish soap and the bread that you picked up while you were there. Also, fun fact, rotisserie chicken is a surefire bait when you're trying to trap feral cats. That's actually how I trapped Brenda's mom, Jim, to get her spayed. Cats love rotisserie chicken. Clothing retailers use this loss leader strategy, I would say, a lot less frequently because, to be honest, the clothing industry works on a much, much higher profit margin than groceries do. As I mentioned episodes ago with Carrie, I've actually been working on the financials for a zero-waste grocery store startup for years now. And it never, never ceases to surprise me how much lower the profit margin on groceries is compared to clothing. Like, all caps, significantly lower. You have to sell a lot more groceries to stay in business than you do clothes. I know that places like H&M used to, and you know maybe still do, price swimsuits incredibly low with little to no profit built in, with the hopes that you'll be lured in the door by the cheap swimwear and then pick up a much more profitable cover-up, hat, and sandals while you're there. So I guess that's a loss leader. This kind of thing drives, oh, it just drives me wild with frustration because the customer doesn't know that H&M is planning to literally lose money on swimwear. So they get angry at other brands for charging a much higher and logical price for swimwear, especially brands that only sell swimsuits. They can't not make a profit on what they sell. Also, good quality swimsuits, not the kind that you're buying at H&M, are so expensive to make because you need really specific fabrics that won't expand in the water, that hold their shape, and don't become transparent when they get wet. Swim is a risky, expensive, not very profitable category for a lot of reasons. One, like I said, it's expensive to make a good bathing suit because the fabric itself is very technical, very specialized, and it's always going to be more expensive than some random polyester that's being used to make, you know, a $29 dress. There are a couple other things that make swim really challenging in terms of profitability. One is, you know, going back to what I was saying about these H&M bathing suits that are basically being sold at cost, customers are really resistant to paying a lot for swimwear for the most part because it's not a super useful item for most people in most parts of the country, right? Like if you live somewhere warm where you can spend a lot of time at the pool and the beach, that's a totally different story and you might be more willing to invest in a bathing suit. But like if say you live where I live in Pennsylvania, you're really only looking at a few months out of the year when you can wear it. And so that 
makes an expensive bathing suit a lot less appealing to a customer. So they're always going to be a lot more sensitive to price. You you also have to rein in the pricing here, right? You're in this tough situation where you're like, okay, the fabric's more expensive, but customers don't want to pay more. What's the balance there? Well, the balance is that you don't mark it up as much. And so it's a less profitable category. And lastly, the other thing that makes swimwear really, really difficult, really risky, I guess I would say, from a financial perspective, is that for the most part, you have a very short window for selling bathing suits. Now, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. I'm going to start by saying that. But, you know, in general, most companies are sort of adhering to this old-timey calendar of buying things and putting them on sale, even though they're buying stuff twice as fast and, you know, bringing in twice as many styles. They still, when it comes to more seasonal categories like swimwear and sandals and on the other side of the coin, gloves and hats and sweaters, they're still following this very old timey, like we're talking, this is how the department stores have been buying product for decades and decades, idea of people buying stuff early in the season, kind of putting it away until later in the season, which isn't really as relevant now, I think millennials and Gen Z are more of like a buy now, wear now crowd. And so they're not going to buy a pair of sandals or a swimsuit four months before they can wear it. Same thing with gloves and hats. But retailers are still buying this way. So you see this stuff in the stores very early in the season and then going to mark down very early. They're bringing in a lot of swimwear around February so people can have it for spring break. And they're expecting to put it all on sale I would say by July in most cases, um, which is why if you're like me and it's late July and you still didn't get a swimsuit this year, you're probably out of luck. <laughs> but that short selling window means that you have to buy exactly, exactly the right number of units of every style and the right number of styles. Because if you buy too much, you're going to be practically giving this stuff away by the end of summer. If you buy too little... You're going to run out in May and you're going to have lots of upset customers and you're going to miss your sales plan. Swim is complicated. It's fascinating to me that places like H&M have this completely different strategy to it. But knowing that now, knowing that it's not as profitable, it's really hard to make it profitable. Let me tell you a cautionary tale. This is a lesson I have learned well, it wasn't really my hard way, but it was someone else's hard way, let's say it that way, and I just happened to observe it. So one of my previous employers was trying to make swim as profitable as possible because this category was really on the rise at that time. And what we were learning about our customers is they wanted to buy a lot of bathing suits, you know, kind of like the way we feel about dresses for weddings and whatnot. Most of our customers felt like you needed to be wearing a different swimsuit every day for every Instagram post at every pool party at Coachella, you name it. You needed to go on vacation with a separate swimsuit for each day that you were on vacation. So our customers wanted to buy a lot of swimsuits. The problem is that swimwear is always a less profitable category because like I said, the fabric is so expensive if you want it to be a good bathing suit. But this employer of mine wanted us to make swimwear more profitable, but also not raise the price because they wanted customers to continue to buy lots of bathing suits. So what did they do? They did the fast fashion classic move here. They reduced the cost of making the swimsuit, which 
meant, of course, swapping out the fabric. And guess what happened? Tons of women ordered swimsuits for spring break that literally expanded in the water, like grew and fell off their bodies before they could get out of the pool. I mean, total nightmare, right? There were so many extremely upset and rightfully so emails that came in after that spring break. In general, outside of H&M and their swimsuits, clothing retail doesn't operate with a loss leader strategy. Instead, we talk about the merchandising pyramid. Other companies might call it the pyramid of price points, the assortment planning pyramid. It doesn't matter. It's a pyramid. So let's close our eyes and picture a pyramid. It's widest at the base and narrowest at the top. Let's imagine drawing three equidistant horizontal lines across that pyramid, breaking it into three layers. The bottom section will end up being the biggest because it's the widest part of the pyramid, right? The tippy top will be the smallest because it's the narrowest, it's the point of the pyramid. And the one in the middle, well, it'll be medium-sized. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Buyers use this breakdown, this pyramid split into three sections to plan what they're going to buy. The bottom widest part of the pyramid will be the lowest price point product, the cheapest stuff. And a buyer will buy the most units of this stuff because the hope is that one, it will lure customers in the door because it's so cheap, going back to this $10 dress at Fashion Nova. And two, customers will buy multiples because of that price point. So, you know, you might put a lot of basics in that category. Most certainly, it will be the most widely popular product because you're buying the most units of all of this stuff. So think skinny jeans that are like $59, two for 20 tank tops, layering pieces like bandos and bralettes. All of these items at the bottom of the pyramid will be offered in a variety of colorways with the hopes of getting the customer to buy multiple units. This price bucket and sort of aesthetic, I guess the aesthetic here is mass appeal, is referred to as good. So the bottom of the pyramid, good. File that away. The next slice of the pyramid, that middle section, it's still pretty big, maybe not as big as the bottom, but it's, it's close, and it's called better. Better is that medium price point, not expensive, not cheap, still pretty accessible, but not, not those like smoking hot deals that are going to get someone in the door. Some people might call these the more elevated basics, you know, because here there are button-up shirts, which would have been too expensive for the bottom layer of the pyramid because... There's too much construction involved to keep them at that kind of low price. You know, we won't maybe have skinny jeans in this this level because they're kind of basic, but there will still be something that a lot of people want to buy, like, you know, cropped flares, right? Something that's appealing to a lot of people. We'll see easy dresses that you kind of, anyone can wear with any body type. Here, the buyer will still buy these things in multiple colors, but not in the same huge way as the items in the bottom of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is called 
best. And this is the stuff that is the most expensive and the most experimental, the kind of styles that might only sell in big cities or at the very least to a very specific customer. These styles are bought the smallest, you know, maybe only 50 or 300 units, while the buys for the lower levels of the pyramid could range from 1,000 units to 20,000 units or even more, depending on the size of the retailer. The top of the pyramid, this best stuff, is just there to sort of elevate the rest of the product offering. This is the stuff that will bring in a certain type of customer who cares less about deals and more about trends. This stuff will certainly be very trendy, edgy, more difficult to wear, a lot more of an all-caps look. As a buyer, I would take one idea and I would play it out through the different layers of the pyramid in different ways. So let's say spring dresses. The bottom of the pyramid, the good bucket, would be mostly knit, easy dresses at a price point, maybe like $29 or $39, with the plan, of course, that at some point during the season, they would go on promo for $10 or $20 less. So suddenly we're saying, here's a $19 dress getting a lot closer to fashion over here, right? These dresses would have little to no details, definitely not pockets, probably not even a zipper or buttons, something that would just pull over the head. And it would probably be a solid fabric because prints are more expensive. Not like $10 more expensive, but like every cent counts here. If the trend is, say, puff sleeve nap dresses, which it has been kind of for a while now, This one would be very simple, definitely made of a stretchy t-shirt fabric in like four or five colors, maybe black, navy, one other neutral, and then one or two so-called pop colors that are really just there to bring people over to that rack in the store where they will inevitably buy the black colorway or one of the neutrals. But maybe... That black dress will be such a hit that the customer will come back next week to buy another color and another color a few weeks later. Or heck, maybe they're going to go in the fitting room that day, fall in love with this dress and buy it in three colors right out of the gate. And they're going to feel like they can because this dress is $19, $29, $39. It feels like something they should buy a lot of because they can. The middle of the pyramid, that better segment, might be a bit trendier, but not too trendy. It still needs to be pretty accessible and have a lot of mass appeal because you're still buying a lot here. These dresses will have more construction involved. So they'll probably be woven instead of a knit, and they'll have a zipper, maybe a pocket or two, probably a mixture of prints and solids. Like, It would be standard for me to say, okay, I'm going to buy this middle price point dress, this better dress in four colors, two solids, two prints, because like I said, the solids will be cheaper and that will be great because it will offset the higher cost of the prints. So we can charge the same price for all four, but it's not unusual to like, I know J. Crew does this to charge $10 more for a print versus a solid. I don't know if they really need to go as far as $10 more, but that's what I see. 
This dress also might have some built-in smocking or some other detail. Maybe it will be a stretchy fabric to make it fit more people because this is still going to be a pretty big buy. So we want to reduce the likelihood that it's going to be returned. The best version, that top of the pyramid of this dress, would definitely be woven, definitely have a nicer zipper, maybe metal. I wouldn't get my hopes up, but it might. <laughs> pockets, a good fabric, and probably some more details like embroidery or mixed fabrics, maybe patchworking or even puffier statement sleeves. This dress might also be name brand, which will automatically make it seem more valuable to the customer. This is the version of the dress that will definitely be used as marketing to lure in customers. It's interesting to talk about this with you, but it's making me realize that as a buyer, I was taught to do the following things. One, look at customers as falling into two different types, the ones who want deals and the ones who want style. And to, of course, provide product for both of them. Of course, in a perfect world, the product that was a deal would have so much style that it would appeal to the other customer as well. Number two, I would create product around price, not around quality or aesthetic. If it wasn't cheap enough to fit in the bottom of the pyramid, then I just couldn't buy it, no matter how much I liked it or how much I thought the customer might like it. Because the thing was, I was given guidelines for the numbers of styles that I needed to have in each section of the pyramid and the amount of money I could spend on each section. The actual product seemed to matter much less than the price. And so, I mean, we've talked about this before where as a buyer, you see something, it's coming out more expensive than you can afford. And so you start cheapening it. Okay, can we use a, ch a cheaper fabric? Can we get rid of the zipper? Can we take out some length in the skirt? Okay, let's take out the lining, that kind of stuff. That's how this mostly disappointing product happens. Quality was barely discussed as quality tends to be synonymous with lower profit in the world of fast fashion. Number three, I was always thinking of new ways to get people to buy as many items as possible as often as possible. So I would offer things in lots of colors and add new colors periodically. I would take an idea, this is some classic hashtag buyer's life here, I would take an idea that worked and I would reinterpret it to death. Like puff sleeves are in, okay, put them on everything. Do it in a maxi dress, a midi dress, a mini dress. Do baby dolls and bodycon dresses, all with puff sleeves. Maybe throw in a puff sleeve jumpsuit. Do longer puffy sleeves, solids, prints, knits, and wovens. Do it all. A puff sleeve sweater dress? Sure, let's try it. And don't forget, we also can do puff sleeve bodysuits, blouses, t-shirts, probably pajamas, maybe a blazer. It's all about getting the customer to spend more and more money. Laying all this out for you is an interesting experience for me because these are rules and strategies that I just took for granted. They were sort of the gospel of buying. And if you could master them, if you could see all the product you bought through that lens, you would run a successful business. You would get theoretically promoted. Good, better, best. That dang pyramid. 
It's funny to hear myself explain it all out loud and not to someone on my team who I'm trying to mentor, but I think it's important for all of you to understand all of the subtle ways in which our behaviors as consumers are ultimately being manipulated and I mean, really created by the companies selling us stuff. We want to buy something in multiple colors because it's there and it's in our faces and we're encouraged to do so. We're low-key sort of told like, don't miss this opportunity. Get it in all five colors now because it'll be gone. That's the thing about fast fashion. It's fast, right? <laughs> We've been subtly trained to recognize that the cooler, more trendy, more statementy clothing should be much more expensive than the more basic things that we'll wear again and again, which doesn't make sense at all. The more versatile stuff, the things we can repeat over and over and over again, they should last a lot longer than they do. Yet we're being sold these $1.90 tank tops from Forever 21, which aren't a great idea because if it's truly a versatile basic, something that we should want in many colors and to wear for a long time, how many wears can you really get out of something that costs just so little to make? It's been exciting and still remains exciting to be on this journey with you for more than one year as we unpack what we buy, how we buy, and how it all impacts our planet and its people. I've learned so much in this process, maybe even more than you, not to brag. (laughs) And I'm committed to always doing better and better, both when it comes to my own relationship with clothing and shopping and with the information and ideas I present to you here on the podcast. Because you know what? We are all in this together. And it's our mutual support of one another, our openness to new information, our bravery when it comes to changing up our own habits because it's hard. It's hard to change up what you've been doing your whole life and our desire to see a better world. All of these things, they will allow us to make some serious changes in the world because guess what? Fashion is a big fucking deal. Yes, that's a phrase that deserves an F-bomb. It might seem like a trifle, a silly distraction from the really important issues, but the reality is we all need to wear clothes. We all like to wear things we like and should. And this need to wear clothing and clothing that we like has become a behemoth, this beast called fashion. And it's destroying our planet. It's exploiting its people And it's affecting our future. It's time for us to slay this beast or at least rehabilitate it. It's good to care about fashion. Let's care about it together. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Please don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Maybe even subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, tell your friends because that's that's how we slay fast fashion if you would like to support my work on clothes horse please consider becoming a patron you can find out more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast you'll get access to exclusive episodes and special clothes horse swag you also just get a warm and fuzzy feeling 
just wanted to add that all those supporters you hear in the beginning of the episode, those are small brands who support the pod for $25 per month. And in exchange, they get access to all of you. It felt like the most on-brand way that Close Horse could, you know, keep going. You can also make a one-time contribution via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Please don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Department. We just finished a two-parter on trolls, not the dolls, which are cool, but jerks on the internet. So go check that out. It was really fun and educational to work on. And thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 